Let us open in prayer, and then I will introduce Jason. Let's bow our heads. Father, it is our desire that throughout this evening and the instruction that we get from Dr. Lyle, that you would be glorified in our hearts, in our minds, in our thoughts, that you would educate and equip and edify us tonight through the truth. We pray that our time spent together through this conference may increase our confidence in your word, in your truthfulness, in your wisdom, in all things, and equip us to boldly and confidently share the gospel, share our faith, and trust in your word. We pray that you would accomplish this work in our hearts for the glory of Christ our King, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, I told you last year after at our conference last year with Andrew Rappaport that our conference would only get better each and every year, and we have fulfilled that this year. That is almost a promise that keeps itself. Dr. Jason Lyle has a double major in physics and astronomy with a minor in mathematics from Ohio Wesleyan University. He has a master's degree and a PhD in astrophysics at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Jason has been on staff at Answers in Genesis, where he designed the planetarium presentation titled Created Cosmos. He served at the Institute for Creation Research, and now he has founded and runs the Biblical Science Institute. Jason puts to lie the notion that no smart people believe in creation, or that no scientists believe in God, or that no truly smart people uh, disagree with, with evolution. He, he refutes all of that. Jason is a tremendously brilliant man, and we are pleased to have him here, and the Church of Christ is blessed to have him serve us in this way. So please welcome Dr. Jason Lyle. All right, well, it's uh, very good to be with you this evening, and I, I'm going to start by talking about the ultimate proof of creation, making all of the other talks just a waste of time, right? Well, not really, because we're going to cover a lot of science tomorrow, and the, the, I find that's very helpful to know something about science so that you can defend biblical creation well, so that you can talk intelligently about the issues, about genetics, fossils, astronomy, and so on. It's good to know some things about that. But i got to tell you, no matter how much you know about science, there's always somebody that knows more than you know about science, especially in a particular field. Because there are people who have PhDs and genetics and in, in certain specialty fields, there's always somebody smarter. And so people have asked me, is there one argument that I could learn just really well that just blows away everything else? An ultimate proof of creation? And the answer is yes, there is. And it's good to know this because uh, those of you that are Christians, you want to share your faith, you want to you sh share with people that they need to trust in Jesus, they need to repent and believe the gospel. They need to obey Christ and so on. And there are objections to that. And one of the main objections is, well, nobody believes the Bible anymore because we know millions of years of evolution is the way that life came about. And science has allegedly proved that. Of course, it hasn't. But that's what we hear. Evolution is one of the main reasons why people end up rejecting the Bible. It's one of the intellectual reasons or pseudo-intellectual reasons. And so what I want to give you this evening is an ultimate proof that the Christian worldview, beginning in Genesis, really is true. It's not just a proof of creation, it's a proof of the Christian worldview. And so that's something that would be very useful for you Christians to know. And if you're not a Christian, you need to become a Christian and then learn this argument, right? Because we want to share this with folks. It's not a trick, it's not a gimmick, it's a way of revealing truth. That certain things are provable. Now, just because I can demonstrate the truth of biblical creation doesn't mean that everyone will necessarily accept that argument. You understand that, right? And, and there's this temptation for us to say, well, th this didn't convince 
my friend, so therefore, it's, maybe it's not a good argument. Well, not necessarily. Sometimes people are not persuaded by very good arguments. That doesn't necessarily mean there's anything wrong with the argument. It means there's something wrong with people. People are not always rational. And they're not always persuaded by good arguments. In fact, people are often persuaded by bad arguments. That's what logical fallacies are. Logical fallacies are bad arguments that tend to be persuasive. Well, keep in mind, though, it's not, it's not my job, it's not your job as a Christian to ultimately persuade people to change their heart because you can't do that anyway. That's up to God. But you can give a defense of the faith that is irrefutable. You can give a demonstration of the truth of the Christian worldview. So keep in mind that just because the person doesn't cry uncle, that doesn't mean I don't have him in headlock, right? And this is not an intellectual game. This is not a trick or a gimmick. This is, this is a matter of eternal life and death. And what I want to show you is that the truth of the Christian worldview can be objectively demonstrated in a way that no one can refute. Even though they might not be persuaded, they can't refute it. So that's what I want to deal with this evening. That ought to be worth the cost of admission right there, right? Yeah. And, of course, it bothers some people because they'll think, well, wait a minute, if you can demonstrate the truth of the Christian worldview, then do, do I need faith? And the answer is yes, because faith is when you have confidence in something you haven't perceived with your senses. Now, I can't perceive creation with my senses in the sense I can't see God creating and things like that because he's, he's done. <laughs> that happened before I was born. But nonetheless, I have confidence in it. So it is a type of faith. It's just a provable one. That bothers people because they don't know what faith is. <laughs> well, before I get to the ultimate proof, I want to start with some other lines of scientific evidence that people often use. And we'll, we'll hit more of these tomorrow. And uh, I want to start with these because these are not the ultimate proof of creation. I want to show you how the ultimate proof is different. So by way of contrast, let me start out with some, some lines of evidence that are good lines of evidence, but they're not quite ultimate. For example, we could talk about uh, information. We'll talk about this more tomorrow, information and how information is transmitted and such. There's a whole field of science, information theory, that deals with how information is transmitted. And so when you pick up a book and it's got information in it, one of the, one of the laws of information theory is that information always originates in a mind. And so if you pick up a book and it's got creative information in it, and we'll talk about what that is and how it's defined, and so we'll do that tomorrow. But, but you sort of intuitively know what information is. You read a book, it's got information on it, you can learn something from it. You know that ultimately that book came from a mind. Somebody wrote it. It didn't come from like an explosion in a typewriter, right? You would assume that if a book has creative information in it, it comes from a mind. Now, a, a non-mental process can copy information. A Xerox machine can copy information. It can copy a book, but it can't write one because it doesn't have a mind. And that's very interesting because you know what we have in DNA? We have information in DNA. The instructions to make you are encoded on that molecule that exists in the cells of your body. And it's got the instructions to make you. Where did you get that information? You got it from your parents. They got it from their parents. All the way back to Adam and Eve who got it from God. So the information ultimately that makes up your physical traits, and we'll, we'll see how that works genetically tomorrow, but um, all, that goes back to a mind. It's consistent with the uh, laws of information theory. Mutations don't help. They might, under certain circumstances, help an organism survive. That can happen, but by, it's by reducing information. And again, we'll see how that works tomorrow. My point is that genetics really confirms biblical creation. Information theory confirms biblical creation. In the beginning, God created. 
And so all those instructions that are built into us ultimately originated with God. Some have been lost over time. We'll see how that works as well. It's not consistent with the idea of evolution, where the information in your DNA gradually accumulated over millions of years of chance mutations uh, and then natural selection weeding off the cases that were unsuccessful. It's, that's not consistent with information theory. Natural selection and mutations occur, but they can't drive evolution. We could talk about the age of the earth. I'll talk about that more tomorrow in detail, but the Bible indicates a world that's thousands of years old, which is striking to people because we've been brainwashed into believing the world's Earth's 4.5 billion years old and the universe is supposedly 13.8 billion years old, although that changed a couple weeks ago. It's now 12 to 13 billion years old. Yeah, that changes every now and then. But you know, there's a lot of science that confirms the biblical time scale of thousands of years. For example, carbon dating. A lot of people think carbon dating gives the millions of years. It never does. There are other methods that secular scientists use that they believe give millions of years. We'll talk about those tomorrow. But uh, carbon dating isn't one of them. Carbon dating is our friend, and it gives ages, age estimates that are consistent with the biblical time scale, give or take. I mean, they're not exact, but they're close. For example, um, diamonds. We've found diamonds with C14 in them. C14 is an unstable variety of carbon, and it decays with a half-life of 5,700 years. And so the bottom line is if the entire Earth were made of C14, after a million years, you'd not have one atom of it left. It would all have decayed away into nitrogen. And yet we find it in diamonds that are supposedly billions of years old, but they can't be more than a few thousand years old. There's lots of stuff like that. And again, we'll hit more of those uh, tomorrow. I just want to point out that the, the, the physical evidence confirms the biblical age of the earth of thousands of years. And I find, in particular, car the carbon-14, uh, I find that very compelling. As a, as a physicist, I don't see how you could, you know, how you could look at that any other way, really. Uh, in my own area of astrophysics, there's all kinds of evidence of, of a universe that is consistent with the biblical age. Comets, for example. Comets are made of ice and dirt, and they orbit around the sun in elliptical pads. They go far away from the sun where the ice remains frozen. Then they come close to the sun and get whiplashed back out. Now, you might think ice close to the sun, that can't be good, and you'd be right. The solar heat heats up that ice and vaporizes it, and that's actually what forms a comet's tail. That's material being blasted away from the nucleus of the comet. And uh, so every time you see a comet, it's getting smaller. It's losing mass. And we know how much mass is there. We can measure that. The nucleus of the comet's a few, few miles across. And we can measure the rate at which it's being depleted. We can see that. And you do the math, you find out a comet can last something like 100,000 years maximum. A typical comet. Some more, some less. Some much less. Uh, I used the SOHO spacecraft in my doctoral research. And SOHO, all it does is look at the sun. And it's got one instrument that, that, that blocks the sun and looks for comets as they get real close to the sun. I've seen comets that have gone behind the sun, and that's it. They, they, were, be, they were totally destroyed in one pass. So Comet Ison, for example, that comet does not exist anymore. It's gone because it's been totally destroyed by the solar heat. So the, that would seem to eliminate the, a, a multi-billion-year-old solar system, the fact that we still have comets around. And, and I could go on and on, and, and we'll see more of these tomorrow. And there's, there's a lot of exciting evidence that confirms biblical creation. But my point is that these lines of evidence, as, as compelling as, as they seem, they're, they're, they're less than an ultimate proof. And the reason they're not quite an ultimate proof is because for every line of evidence that I've presented, a secularist can always invoke what we might call a rescuing device. He can come up with a hypothesis that protects his way of thinking, his beliefs, from evidence that appears to be to the contrary. And so, for example, in, in the case of comets, uh, my secular colleagues are well aware that comets can't last billions of years. They know that. 
They can do the same math I can do. And so they've said, well, but we know the solar system is billions of years old. because they, They've accepted that as a fact. And so they said, well, there must be a source of new comets, which they call the Oort cloud. If you've ever had the, heard of the Oort cloud, it's not something that's been seen or, or discovered. It's something that's been proposed as a uh, basically a comet generator. And the idea is that out beyond the farthest planets, out beyond Neptune, there's a, there's a vast reservoir of potential comets where they remain frozen all the time in circular orbits. And then the idea is every now and then one of them gets, gets dislodged from its orbit, thrown into the inner solar system, becomes a brand new comet. So as old comets disintegrate, new ones replace them. So there you go. The solar system can be billions of years old after all. we got a comet generator that, that keeps it well-stocked with comets. Now, if I were to ask my secular colleague, do you have any observational evidence of an Oort cloud? If he's honest, he'll say, no, we don't. And if he's clever, he'll say, but you can't prove it's not there. Right? And that's true. I can't disprove the existence of an undetectable Oort cloud. It's undetectable. How am I supposed to prove or disprove that? Right? A good rescuing device is neither provable nor disprovable. That's what makes them good. And for every line of evidence I've presented, a clever person can come up with a rescuing device. I could point out how information never arises by chance, and the fact that we have information in our DNA suggests it came from a mind. You could say, well, there could be some undiscovered mechanism that produces that information in our DNA. We just haven't discovered it yet. Give us time. Science is a process. Well, yeah, that's, that's true. Or, or uh, carbon, C14 and diamonds. It doesn't last billions of years. It doesn't even last a million years. He says, well, there could be some unknown uh, process that's generating new C14 down there. We just haven't discovered it yet. Or there could be some kind of contamination on the surface. Give us time. We'll find it. The eschatological cop-out. In the future, we'll have an answer for this problem, right? And before I'm too harsh with my critics, I need to point out that, that Christians have, we have our rescuing devices too. If I were to ask you about an alleged contradiction in the Bible, right? Maybe a passage you're not all that familiar with. And I say, how do you reconcile this over here? And you, well, I haven't read that in a while. And I, what it does seem to contradict. Your first inclination probably is not to say, well, yeah, you got me there. I don't see how this can be reconciled. It's a contradiction. I got to throw this away. I can't be a Christian anymore. Your first inclination probably is to say, well, I don't know right now how to reconcile that. But I know this is the word of God and it can't have contradictions. So I know there's an answer. Give me time. I'll find it. <laughs> We all have our rescuing devices because we all have a worldview. We have a way of thinking about how the world works that affects how we understand the evidence that we see. So my secular colleagues and I, we look at the same world. We look at the same earth. We look at the same comets. And my secular colleague looks at those comets. He's got a belief in billions of years, looks at comets and said, there must be an Oort cloud. I, I, I believe the Bible. I look at comets and I say, well, of course the solar system is young. You see, we draw different interpretations looking at the same data because we have a different worldview, a different way of thinking about that data. If you think about it, creationists and evolutionists have the same facts. A lot of times people think, well, the way that you win the origins debate is you get more facts on your side, right? I mean, evolutionists have these facts over here, and creationists, we have these facts over here, and we got more facts. But really, we have the same facts. Right? I, I have access to the same fossils and DNA patterns as, as my secular colleagues. I look at the same stars and galaxies that they do. I use the same math they do. We have the same facts. We do science pretty much the same way. In terms of real operational science, the kind of stuff that makes computers work and puts people on the moon and so on. When I do stoichiometry, I do it the same way as my secular colleagues. When I do math, I do it the same way. We do science pretty much the same way, but we have very different 
beliefs about the past because we have a different way of looking at the evidence, which you can think of like mental glasses, your worldview, your way of thinking, like mental glasses. And I like to think of the Bible like corrective lenses that are designed just for you, because the Bible gives us the correct view of history, you see. And so when you put those glasses on, the world snaps into focus and you see things as they really are. That's what the Bible does for us. I like to think of evolution like red glasses. Now you put on red glasses, you look around, you say, well, the world is red, everything's red. Well, it's not really, is it? But that's what you see because those are the glasses that you're wearing. And I realize evolutionists will say, no, we're wearing the right glasses, you're wearing the wrong ones. We'll have to debate that. But my point is we all have mental glasses because we all have these presuppositions, which are your most basic beliefs about reality. A presupposition is not just any old assumption. It's an assumption you hold to very, very tightly, something you would not be willing to give up without a fight. And uh, there are certain presuppositions that are just very basic that you probably, probably haven't even thought about, really, like the basic reliability of your senses. Presumably, you think that what you see and, and smell and taste and touch really is pretty close to reality, right? That you're not just, I mean, how do you know that though? That's a presupposition, isn't it? How do you know that you're not just a brain in a jar and all your experiences are just, you know, electrical input into your brain? How do you know that? Well, it's, you, you presuppose that's not the case. The basic reliability of your memory, you probably think that the things you remember actually happened, right? But how do you know that? How do you know that your memory is basically reliable? You might say, well, Dr. Lyle, I took a memory test two weeks ago. I got an A on it, so I know my memory's reliable. But then I'm going to ask, how do you know you took a memory test two weeks ago? Right? You can say, well, I remember taking, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd have to assume that my memory is reliable in order to argue that I correctly remember that my memory is reliable. That is the nature of a presupposition. You can't escape that. And we use these presuppositions every day. Laws of logic. You use laws of logic, even if you can't recite one, you all know some laws of logic because you couldn't survive without them. If I said my car's in the parking lot and it's not in the parking lot, you wouldn't say, wow, I'd like to see a car that's there and not there, right? You'd assume that I'm mistaken or lying because you know that you can't have A and not A at the same time and in the same sense. That's a law of logic. Can you prove that there are laws of logic? I think you can, but not without using them. Because, you see, we use laws of logic to prove anything, right? So that's the nature of a presupposition. You must use them even in the process of proving them. That bothers folks because most people have the impression that all circular reasoning is wrong. We'll come back to that topic a little bit later. But my point is we all have beliefs about how to interpret the evidence, very basic beliefs. And some, some people don't think they do, though. They'll say, well, not me. I don't have beliefs about how evidence should be interpreted. I believe that we ought to come to the evidence neutrally, to which I'm going to say, well, that's a very interesting belief about how evidence should be interpreted, right? You see, the philosophy that we should come to the evidence with no philosophy is itself a philosophy. It's just a very bad one because it's self-refuting. Okay, there is, there is a... some presuppositions. You say, not me. I, I'm going to be a rigorous scientist. I'm going to come and I'm going to do some experiments on that rock that I see along the rock side of the road there. I'm going to be rigorously neutral. I'm not going to make any assumptions. You've already assumed the rock is there simply because you see it. You've already assumed your senses are basically reliable. That's a presupposition. You can't escape that. And the kicker is creationists and evolutionists have different 
presuppositions, different worldviews. All of your presuppositions together form your worldview. So I'll use those terms interchangeably. Creationists and evolutionists have different worldviews, different sets of presuppositions, which is why we can look at exactly the same fossil and come to very different conclusions about how that fossil came to be. Same evidence, different interpretation, because we have a different worldview. Different rules for interpreting the evidence. And you're going to find that presuppositions are hierarchical. Some of them are more basic than others. Sometimes you'd be willing to trade in a secondary presupposition to protect your, your primary one, right? And uh, so presuppositions will come back to an ultimate standard, something that you take as absolutely unquestionable. And for the creationist, the Bible should be the ultimate standard. Not that it is that way for all creationists, but it should be, right? Because if the Bible, I mean, if this really is the inerrant word of God, doesn't it make sense to start our thinking with this, to base our thinking on this? Now, I, I do have secondary presuppositions. I do believe my senses are basically reliable, but then again, I believe God created my senses. And so that, that makes sense. That secondary presupposition is based on my primary presupposition that the Bible is true. But you see, my secondary presupposition that my senses are basically reliable, I, I know that my senses can be fooled. That's not my ultimate presupposition because my senses can be fooled. Have you ever seen an optical illusion? Your senses can be fooled under certain circumstances, right? You put, uh, you've ever seen like a beam of wood put in water at an angle, and it looks like the wood bends when it goes under the water, right? Because of the way the light refracts. Now, presumably, you don't believe that your eyes are being truthful in that circumstance, because your eyes are telling you the wood bends. But then again, you could, you could put your hand under there, and you could, what well, doesn't seem, my, my sense of touch tells me it doesn't bend. My eyes tell me it does bend. Which one do I go with? They can't both be right, right? And so you have a greater presupposition that tells you how to interpret the evidence in that particular instance. And so the Bible should be our ultimate standard. Now for the evolutionists, there's different varieties of evolutionists out there. They don't all have the, the same ultimate standard, but usually it's either naturalism or strict empiricism. Those, one of those two is usually the ultimate standard that an evolutionist has. Naturalism is the belief that nature's all that there is, and so every, everything that happens, happens within the laws of nature, and therefore there's no God, or if there is a God, he's within nature rather than transcendent to it. Or strict empiricism, which is the belief that all truth claims should be answered by observation. If you want to know something, go out and do a science experiment. That's how we know everything. And of course, I believe some truth claims can be answered that way. I'm a, I'm a strong advocate of, of science and the scientific method, but I don't believe all truth claims can be answered that way. And so we'll, we'll circle back to that one a little bit later. So here's the, here's the issue. Evidence by itself is never decisive when it comes to a worldview issue. And so it's perfectly fine to show people evidence, scientific evidence, historical evidence for the racity of the Bible. That's fine. But you need to understand that that evidence will not conclusively prove one position or the other because a person's worldview tells them what to make of the evidence. When the debate is over worldviews, evidence by itself won't resolve the issue. And I have a silly example I like to use to illustrate this. There was a man who thought that he was dead. He thought that he himself was dead. And by the way, this is a real psychological condition, believe it or not. It's rare, but it happens. So this man, he thought that he was dead, and he's, he's very upset about this. He doesn't like being dead. Who would, right? And his doctor's trying to convince him, well, of course you're not dead. You're walking and talking. And the man says, well, yeah, but, you know, a, a, a human body can have muscle spasms even after clinical death. That could explain my ability to walk and talk. 
And the doctor says, but, but look, I have a medical chart showing you you're perfectly healthy. And the man looks at that and he says, yeah, but you know, maybe the names got swapped on the chart. That might not even be my chart. And uh, who knows if you're interpreting the data right anyway. And the doctor, getting very frustrated, says, well, I'm going to prove to you that you're not dead. Do dead men bleed? And the guy thinks about it for a second. The circulatory system would be stopped. The heart stopped. No, dead men don't bleed. And the, guy, the doctor very quickly takes him, pricks the guy in the hand with a little pin. Sure enough, a little blood comes to the surface. See, you're bleeding. To which the man responds, well, how about that? I guess dead men do bleed. You got me there. <laughs> Silly example, of course, but it makes the point. Did the doctor have evidence for his claim that the man was not dead? Of course he did. There was nothing wrong with those lines of evidence. That's good. That's good evidence. The fact that the guy could walk and talk, that's good evidence that he's not dead. The medical charts, that's good evidence. The guy could bleed, that's good evidence. Did the man find them convincing? And the answer is no, because he had a presupposition that he was dead that told him how to interpret those lines of evidence. In each case, he was able to come up with a rescuing device to explain that evidence in light of his worldview. You say, but, but Lyle, are, is, you know, are, are, are debates over origins like that? They absolutely are. They absolutely are. And so that's why you can't just throw evidence at people and expect them to change their worldview. Because the worldview tells them what to make of the evidence. Now, it's not wrong to show people evidence and how the Bible makes sense of it. It's just not decisive. It's not conclusive. Now, I happen to think fossils are great evidence of the Bible, the fact that there was a worldwide flood. I'd expect to find fossils all over the earth, and that's what we find. But then again, I'm looking at it correctly. I'm looking at the evidence through the lens of Scripture, through the history that the Bible gives us, the correct history of the universe. My secular colleague is going to look at that very same fossil and he's going to say, well, that's not how I see it. Here's how I think the fossils form. I think they formed gradually over millions of years. Those don't prove a worldwide flood. They prove millions of years. And you say, well, yeah, I guess you could look at it that way, right? See, he's looking at it through a different perspective. And so what we think is, well, I guess that evidence is no good. We need more evidence, right? But look, so let me show you how canyons can form quickly. Mount St. Helens demonstrated that. Yes, it did. It cut out a canyon 140th the scale of the Grand Canyon in a matter of hours, showing that, that canyons don't take millions of years to form. But he says, yeah, but just because that canyon formed quickly doesn't mean they all did. The Grand Canyon, that took millions of years. Oh, well, okay, I guess it could have. Yeah, we, I mean, we weren't around to see it. Um, but look, let me show you, rock, rock layers can be deposited quickly. Yeah, Mount St. Helens laid down all kinds of new sediment, some of which is hardened into rock. And he says, well, yeah, but just because those layers did doesn't mean that all rock layers formed quickly. I mean, some of them could have taken millions of years. And you're like, well, yeah, I guess one, one example of something forming fast doesn't prove they all did. But look, let me show you how animals reproduce. They always reproduce according to their kinds. Kangaroos always beget kangaroos. And he says, well, sure, that's because we haven't been around long enough to see one kind gradually change into another. But they do. That's how life evolved. Oh, well, yeah, I guess we haven't been around long enough to, to, to see that. But look, DNA has information in it. Information never comes about by chance. He says, well, there could be some undiscovered process that generates that information. Just give us time. We'll find it. Science is a process. But look, there's, there's evidence in outer space, things like comets that can't last you know, billions of years. And he says, no problem. There's an Oort cloud that makes new ones. So, you know, I present this and people say, well, are, you, are you against showing people evidence? No, I'm not. I, I do a lot of that. I think there's some value in that. But my point is it's not decisive. I do think there's value in showing people evidence and how the Bible makes sense of it because most people aren't even aware that there is a Christian way to look at the evidence. And there is value in showing them that. 
But my point is just showing people that there is a Christian creation way of looking at the evidence doesn't prove that you must look at it that way. Okay? So it's good to show people evidence, how the Bible makes sense of it. This by itself, however, will not resolve a debate over worldviews because a person's worldview tells them what to make of that evidence. There's a larger issue at play here. And I think that one of the, one of the reasons we have difficulty getting this a lot of times, if you're new to this way of thinking, uh, it's because we tend to spend most of our time with people that have basically the same worldview that we have. And when two people have the same worldview, you can convince them of something using evidence. If you and I have a disagreement about whether or not there are crackers in the, uh, in the cupboard, we could settle that debate by going over to the cupboard, opening up, see, well, there are crackers there. And we agree on that because we have the same worldview. We agree our senses are reliable and so on. But if I'm having an argument with a Hindu over whether or not there are crackers in the cupboard, now Hindus believe that all, all we see here is illusion. It's all maya because they don't believe in distinctions. All is one. And so this world is all illusion. And I show them the crackers. Are, are they going to accept that as evidence that I'm right? Well, no. They're going to say, well, that's illusion too. That doesn't prove anything. So you see, if you have a different worldview, you can't just throw evidence back and forth. Somehow we need to demonstrate that our way of thinking about the evidence is the right way of thinking about the evidence. How are we going to do that? So I'm standing over here on my, uh, on my biblical presuppositions. Bible's the word of God and so on. And my secular colleague is standing on his secular presuppositions, maybe naturalism, maybe strict empiricism. How are we going to get anywhere? We can't just throw evidence back and forth. Well, before I give you the right answer, let me give you the wrong answer. Because a lot of times, and it's usually the critic that proposes this, a lot of times people say, well, here's what we'll do. Here's how we'll resolve the issue. We'll meet on neutral ground. We'll meet Because certainly there are some presuppositions that we agree on. For example, the success of science. The science is a tool for unlocking uh, certain truth claims. I agree with that, right? That's a, that's a neutral presupposition. And we'll give up the presuppositions we don't agree on. And he says, and I certainly don't agree the Bible's the word of God, so you've got to leave that out of the conversation. And a lot of Christians think, well, yeah, that sounds really reasonable. We can leave out the Bible and meet on neutral ground. The problem with neutral ground, however, is that there's no such thing as neutral ground. And the Bible says as much. When it comes to a faith commitment, uh, Jesus says, he who is not with me is, what, neutral? No, he who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. Because the mindset on the flesh is, what, neutral toward God? See, unbelievers like to think that. They're like, oh, I'm neutral toward God. I just haven't been convinced that God exists. I haven't seen enough evidence. I'd, I'd be happy to believe in God. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you're hostile toward God if, you're not, if, you're not, if you don't have your mind set on Him. If your mind is set on the flesh, you're hostile toward God. You're not even able to subject yourself to the law of God. You adulteresses do you not know that friendship with the world is, what, neutrality toward God? It's hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You get the picture here? You're either God's friend or his enemy. You're with him, you're against him. You're gathering or you're scattering. There's no neutral. Because the nature of the claim, Jesus demands obedience to him. He's the ultimate standard. He, in the revelation that he's given us in his word, that's the ultimate standard that we're to stand on. And if we reject that, we're not being neutral, we're being anti-biblical. Uh, my mentor on this topic, Dr. Bonson, liked to call this the pretended neutrality fallacy. That's what we're going to call it. The idea that, oh, I'm neutral. You can pretend to be neutral, but you can't actually be neutral because the Bible says there's no such thing. And if you say, well, yes, there is such a thing as neutral, and I'm neutral, you've just said the Bible's wrong, in which case you're not being neutral. You've taken a stand that the Bible is wrong. You get that? 
Neutrality is an anti-biblical concept. And therefore, to take a stand and to say I'm neutral is to say the Bible's wrong, in which case you're not being neutral. Make sure you get that because you will have to explain that to somebody at some point. By the way, secularists like to think they're very neutral. They're going to want you to be neutral. But the Bible says there's no such thing. Neutrality is a secular position. And so don't agree to those terms. Somebody says, well, you know, there's neutral ground and, uh, you know, and I'm neutral and you should be neutral too. And so you've got to give up the Bible because that's, that's biased and everything. And, we'll, you know, if you agree to those terms and you say, yeah, we can lead on neutral ground. We can leave the Bible out of the discussion. Neutral ground is a secular concept. The Bible says there's no such thing. And if you start the debate by basically conceding that the Bible is wrong about neutrality, you've pretty well lost at the outset. Because isn't the debate really about whether or not this is true? If this is true, then creation is true. It's that simple because the Bible teaches creation. And so you're starting the debate by saying, well, this isn't true, at least about neutrality. How are you going to proceed now? You've given up the very thing you're trying to defend. You cannot defend biblical authority by immediately abandoning biblical authority. That's not going to work. Now, people think, oh, but aren't we supposed to be neutral in debating? Not really. Not really. Secularists like to think that they're neutral, and they're going to want you to be neutral. Two things to remember when people ask you to be neutral. One, they're not. Two, you shouldn't be. No one is neutral when it comes to an ultimate standard, and you shouldn't attempt to be neutral because... Well, first of all, it's logically impossible to be neutral by the nature of the claim because the Bible says there's no such thing. And so if you say, yes, there is, you're not neutral. You've, you've taken a stand that the Bible is wrong. And, and secondly, more importantly, God hasn't called us to be neutral. He's called us to be Christians. The man of God is to hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Yes, we do stand on God's word, even when refuting those people who contradict God's word. And people will say, well, you can't do that. You can't stand on the very thing you're trying to defend. Meanwhile, they're standing on evolution while defending evolution. Yeah, they do that. And it seems to me that there's nothing illogical about standing on what you're trying to defend. In battle, you can stand on a hill while you're defending the hill, right? That's a good place to be. Have you ever had something in your eye and you, you can go to a mirror and use your eye to examine your eye and correct your eye? There's nothing illogical about that. It's necessary. If you could defend your ultimate standard by standing on something else, then your ultimate standard isn't ultimate, is it? Obviously, you have to stand on it while defending it. Otherwise, it's not really your ultimate standard. So, all right, so what's the right answer then? We can't just throw evidence back and forth because we're each going to interpret the evidence according to our respective worldview. The debate really is about whose worldview is correct. What's the right way to interpret the evidence? We can't meet on neutral ground because there's no such thing as neutral ground. So we, do we just have like a Mexican standoff here where we can just, you know, we can insult each other, but that's about it? No, no, there is a solution. Because it turns out biblical presuppositions and only biblical presuppositions make knowledge possible. And so what we're going to find is that secular presuppositions are sinking sand. They will not make knowledge possible. Now, this is a biblical claim. The Bible tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You want to start to know anything? It begins with God, the fear of the Lord, a reverential submission to his presuppositions. Biblical presuppositions make knowledge possible. And there's a flip side. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. You reject the presuppositions of Scripture. The Bible says you're a fool. You, you've given up knowledge. You've given up wisdom. Because all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are deposited in Christ. 
It's God's mind that determines truth. And so in order for us to know anything, for us to have truth, it has to be from God, a gift from God. And of course, God has given us that gift. Now, there's an objection to this because some people say, but wait a minute, Dr. Lyle, you're saying we need biblical presuppositions to know anything? That's right. But but I know some non-Christians and they do know some things, right? Yes, they do. But then again, they do know God. They don't have a saving faith in God, but they do know God because everybody does. The Bible makes that clear. And unbelievers do embrace inconsistently biblical presuppositions. We'll see how that works in a little bit. But I want you to understand that everybody knows God, and as a result, everybody can have knowledge. That's, my argument is not that you have to profess a belief in God to have knowledge. My argument is that God would have to exist and would have to be the way the Bible says he is in order for us to have knowledge. And that is true for believers and unbelievers. It's just unbelievers deny it. For the wrath, wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, what, who just don't know any better? Who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That's interesting because to suppress the truth, you have to know the truth. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Self-deception is a real phenomenon. It's something the Bible talks about in James chapter 1. But it's fascinating because to be self-deceived, you have to know the truth in order to do the deceiving, and you have to somehow accept the deception in order to be deceived. It's quite fascinating. And uh, Dr. Bonson actually wrote his dissertation on this topic, and it's, uh, oh, it's a great read. It's a great read. Uh, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Yes, God has revealed himself inescapably to people. We're hardwired such that we have knowledge of God, such that when we look out into creation, we just instantly recognize it as God's handiwork. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. See, Paul's using a play on words there. God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, meaning they're understood. Uh, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they're without excuse. God has hardwired us in such a way that when we look out into creation, we already have built into us some biblical presuppositions, even unbelievers do, that allows, that allows us to correctly understand this is the creation of God. God's the creator. So that they're without excuse and apologia, without an apologetic, without a defense. That's interesting. A good way to do apologetics, the way to do apologetics, is to realize that unbelievers don't have one. You can't have knowledge apart from the Christian worldview. So you see my argument, and the thing I want you to take home this evening is only the Bible can make sense of those things necessary for knowledge. And I'm going to flesh this out. If this is, if this is kind of new to you, you're thinking, I don't know, that's kind of abstract. I don't know if I can follow that. It, it, it makes sense. It makes sense. There are certain things, in, in order for us to know anything about anything, the universe would have to be a certain way. You ever thought about that? In order for us to have knowledge of, you know, say, Saturn or the Andromeda galaxy, the universe would have to be a certain way. It would have to be sort of orderly, right? It would have to be sort of logical. Our minds would have to be a certain way. Our minds would have to be capable of rational thinking, where we could observe the evidence and, and, and consider the options that are available to us and choose the best, right? Our senses would have to be basically reliable. If my eyes and ears are just totally random in the information they're reporting to me, then I couldn't believe anything that I see or hear, right? I couldn't know anything about the universe if my senses weren't reliable. We might call these prerequisites for knowledge. You know what a prerequisite is, right? In, in college, you have to take uh, Calculus 1 before you take Calculus 2. Calculus 1 is a prerequisite for Calculus 2 because Calculus 2 builds on Calculus 1. You don't take the prerequisite 
then calculus two won't make any sense. And some of you are thinking, it didn't make sense anyway, but you get my point, right? In order for the universe to make sense, it would have to be a certain way. There are certain prerequisites. And, and my point is, the Bible tells us the universe is that way. The Bible, you see, the biblical worldview gives us the prerequisites for knowledge. It tells us that the universe was made by God and has therefore been organized by God. It tells us that God made our senses and therefore we'd expect them to be reliable because God made the seeing ear, or the, the seeing eye and the hearing ear. And it tells us that uh, we're made in the image of God and therefore we have the capacity, albeit on a limited creaturely level, to think in a way that's consistent with the character of God, which is to say logically. We can be rational. We don't always exercise that right, but we have the ability to do that. And so you see my argument that the Bible must be true, beginning with biblical creation, is that if it weren't true, you couldn't prove anything is true. This is fascinating, and it's something most people don't think about. People take for granted biblical presuppositions without recognizing their biblical presuppositions. And they try to add to them other presuppositions that are inconsistent and incompatible, like naturalism. Again, we'll see how this works as we, as we go along. But you see, my point is, we need to make people aware of their presuppositions and show them that only Christian presuppositions make knowledge possible. This is a very powerful argument, and it's, I dare say it's irrefutable. I've never had anybody be able to come back with a rational uh, answer to this. You can either be a consistent Christian or you can be irrational. Those are your options. Now, unbelievers can have pockets of rationality within their world because they do rely on biblical presuppositions, albeit inconsistently. And we want to point out that inconsistency. Presuppositions, they're like your kidneys, right? You can't live without your kidneys, not for very long anyway. And they're constantly doing what they're doing, and most people are not aware of their own. Presuppositions are like that. What I want to do, basically, is give the unbeliever the intellectual equivalent of a kidney stone. I want to give him information. I want to give him information that his presuppositions cannot process. And suddenly, he's going to be very aware of his presuppositions for the first time. If you've ever had a kidney stone, suddenly you're very aware of your kidneys. And you know that something is wrong with them. That's what I want to do. I want to give the unbeliever the intellectual equivalent of a kidney stone. For his own good. It's not going to kill him. It's just going to hurt. It's just going to hurt. And he'll be better off for it in the long run, hopefully, if he, if he turns to Christ anyway. But that's not up to me. I'm just, I'm just presenting the problem. I'm just making him aware that his presuppositions are faulty. They're inconsistent with each other. He has to steal Christian presuppositions to uh, support his own worldview. So what are, what are some of these presuppositions I'm talking about that make knowledge possible? Let me just discuss three briefly, and we'll focus in on one of them. Laws of logic. But you see, laws of logic... That's a Christian presupposition. The idea that there are rules of correct reasoning. Why would there be rules of correct reasoning in a chance universe? And who decides what they are? Ever thought about that? Laws of logic are abstract, and you know, because they're, you can't touch a law of logic. They're not physical, they're not made of atoms. So that, that immediately rules out a materialistic worldview, right? Because there are, there are people who say everything that exists is matter in motion. Well, you can't be logical because laws of logic are not matter in motion. If, if everything that exists is just atoms and energy, you can't have laws of logic. Do you realize that? They cannot exist in a materialistic worldview. So that blows away that worldview right there. And yet materialists still want to think they're logical. But you see, it's inconsistent. Laws of logic apply the same everywhere. Now, why would that be? We all assume that. 
I had never been in this room before today, and yet it didn't occur to me to say, boy, I hope laws of logic work in this room, or I'm in big trouble, right? I assume they worked here. Why? Because I believe in a God who is sovereign over the entire universe, who is omnipresent, and therefore his rules of correct reasoning apply everywhere. They work just as well here as they do in the Andromeda Galaxy, as they do on the moon, as they do in Europe. Okay? Because God is sovereign over the entire universe. So laws of logic are the same everywhere. Laws of logic don't change with time. Right? You know that. You don't say, well, sure, you can't contradict yourself on Fridays, but on Saturdays, go ahead. Contradictions can be true on Saturdays. Right? No, that wouldn't make sense. We assume that laws of logic will work in the future as they have in the past, and that makes sense because God is beyond time. And so naturally, his thinking is unchanging. You see, laws of logic really are a reflection of the way God thinks and the way he expects us to think, the way we must think if we're to think reasonably, if we're to think rationally, correctly. And all, all the laws of logic and their properties make sense in the Christian worldview. In any other worldview, you'd never be able to account for why laws of logic have the properties that they have or how we could possibly know that. Somebody might say, well, I, I just think laws of logic are the same everywhere. How can you possibly know that apart from divine revelation? Have you been everywhere? Oh, you've never even left the earth. And I've got to tell you, the earth is a really small part of the universe. How can you possibly extrapolate your experiences on this little grain of sand to everywhere? That's a hasty generalization fallacy. That's not logical. You can't, make, you can't draw that conclusion, and yet everybody assumes it. Why? Because we're made in the image of God, and God built that into us to know that laws of logic are the same everywhere because he's sovereign over the universe. So you see, laws of logic are rooted in the Christian worldview, aren't they? They really are. Or uniformity in nature, which is not to be confused with uniformitarianism. We'll talk about uniformitarianism tomorrow. Uniformitarianism is the belief that rates and conditions have been basically constant over Earth's history. I don't believe that because there was a worldwide flood that changed uh, rates and conditions quite drastically. But I do believe in uniformity, which is just the idea that there are patterns in nature, that there's orderliness to nature. And I would expect that on the basis of God's word, because the universe is not an accident. It's created by God, and it's upheld by God. God upholds all creation by the word of his power, the expression of his power. And he does that in a way that's consistent and orderly. In fact, he's promised a certain amount of order in the universe. Genesis 8.22, God promises the basic cycles of nature, the seasons, the day and night cycle, will be in the future as they have been in the past. So I know beyond any shadow of doubt that the sun will rise tomorrow, right? As long as the earth remains, until Judgment Day. Now on Judgment Day, all bets are off. But uh, until then... I can, I can rest assured the sun will rise tomorrow. But you know what? In a secular worldview, you have no basis for that. And it won't do any good to say, well, it rose yesterday, because that's not the question I'm asking. I'm just asking, how do you know it will rise tomorrow? And the idea that we can use past experience as a basis for what's likely to happen in the future, that's a Christian presupposition, because God is sovereign over the past and the future. He upholds things in a consistent way that we can, that we can benefit from. We need that to live. We need that to survive. Let me give you an example of this. Suppose you get up in the middle of the night to get a drink of water, and it's dark, and you're, you're fumbling around, and you stub your toe on something. Ah, ever done that? <laughs> That's unpleasant, isn't it? Now, the next night when you get up to get a drink of water, you're very careful not to stub your toe again. You say, this time I'm going to turn the lights on. This time I'm going to take it extra slow, whatever. You don't want to stub your toe again. Why? Because you assume that if you stub your toe again, it will hurt again. Now, if you're a consistent Christian, that's, that's a very reasonable and rational assumption to make because God upholds the universe in a consistent way. You do the same thing, get the same result. What you sow is what you reap. Biblical principle. 
But my point is, in a chance universe, why would you assume that? In a chance universe, who knows what's going to happen? The next time I stub my toe might be the most enjoyable experience of my life, right? <laughs> chance. Why would you expect such, such a pattern? Uniformity in nature over, over space and over time, we assume that the laws of nature are the same in the Andromeda galaxies there on the earth. All astronomers assume that. But it's only the Christian ones that can explain why that is. It's only the Christians who have a justification for that belief because God is sovereign over the Andromeda galaxy just as he is earth. Those two are kind of abstract. Laws of logic, uniformity of nature. Most of us haven't thought about what makes laws of logic possible or what is it that makes science possible, uniformity in nature and so on. But morality. Ah, people have given thought to morality, right and wrong. And people have very strong opinions on right and wrong. So I want to kind of focus in on that one because I think of the three, it's the easiest to start with if you're new to this way of, of thinking. Start with morality because people have thought about that. But my point is morality would make no sense in a chance universe. If there's no God, if we're just chemical accidents, well, I'm sorry, but what one chemical accident does to another is morally irrelevant. There's no morality. There's no ought in a chance universe. You realize that? Chemistry just behaves the way chemistry behaves. There's no right or wrong about it. You certainly can't have absolute morality. Who decides what it is? The idea that we have an obligation to obey God's law, that makes sense in a created universe where God has made us and has the right to make the rules and God will hold us accountable for our behavior. And so I have a very good reason for obeying God's law. Judgment's coming. And of course, we all fall short. We need salvation. I understand that. But my point is morality makes no sense in a chance universe. So these three things, these are not the only three, but I like to kind of focus in on these three. Laws of logic, uniformity in nature, absolute morality. These things only make sense. They're only justified in a Christian worldview based on biblical creation with God as the creator. Now, my point is not that evolutionists don't believe in these things. My point is they do, and yet on their professed worldview, they would have no basis for them whatsoever. And so when my atheist friend says, but, but Dr. Lyle, I believe in laws of logic, I'm going to say, yeah, but you, sh you shouldn't if you're really we're an atheist, because why would there be universal laws and who decides what they are and how do you know they don't change with time? How do you know they're the same everywhere? Your beliefs are unjustified on your professed worldview. But, but Dr. Lyle, I believe in the methods of science, but you shouldn't. You believe it's a chance universe. Why would you expect to find patterns in a chance universe? And why would you expect that there would be any kind of rationality to the universe if there's no mind behind it? Rationality is a characteristic of a mind. No mind, no rationality. But Dr. Lyle, I try to behave myself. I try to be good. What does that even mean if you're just a chemical accident? That's what I want to know. So what you want to do is an internal critique. You want to show that the evolutionist on his own worldview doesn't have a basis for believing in the many things that he has stolen from the Christian worldview. So you can think of it like these, you know, these two cars. And most people think of worldviews this way. You just you pick your worldview, right? Or you, or you get it from your parents, or you get it from your professor or whatever. And it's just a question of personal preferences. Do you like blue? Do you like flame color? Take your pick. But what you're going to find is that the biblical worldview, when we investigate it, it can lead to knowledge. It makes knowledge possible. It can go somewhere. The secular worldview, when we examine it and open it up, it can't possibly work. It can't lead to knowledge. It's empty. It's futile. Let me give you an example of an internal critique. Some, somebody's a relativist. You've heard of relativists? They'll say things like, all things are relative. There are no absolutes. And of course, the question you want to ask is, are you absolutely certain? Right? <laughs> Easy. The statement there are no absolutes is an absolute statement. If it's true, it's false. Therefore, it's false. You see? 
Easy. That's that's an internal critique. You should, the world that that worldview blows itself up on its own terms. Another example: strict empiricism. A lot of evolutionists are strict empiricists. They believe that all truth claims are proved by empirical observation. Okay, so think think of any truth claim you can think of. The way you test it is by observation, by your senses. And if you can't taste it or touch it or see it or smell it or hear it, if you can't if you can't test it with your senses, then you shouldn't believe it. But here's the thing you want to eventually ask. How do you know the statement itself is true? Was it proved by empirical observation? You see, the statement, all truth claims are proved by empirical observation, is itself a truth claim that is not proved by empirical observation, right? Because nobody has seen a truth claim. They're abstract. And even if you could, you couldn't see all of them because there's an infinite number of them. You see, so the claim that all truth claims are proved by empirical observation is itself a truth claim that cannot be proved by empirical observation. And so if it's true, you shouldn't believe it. Isn't that interesting? And people have this way of thinking. They don't realize it is illogical. It is self-refuting. Secular worldviews blow themselves up on their own terms. Every time. In fact, any non-Christian worldview. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of um, focusing in on evolution and secular thinking, but this will work for other religions too. You just need to ask the right questions. Push the unbeliever to be consistent with what he says he believes, and the worldview will blow itself up on its own terms. You see, all worldviews have to defend themselves in a somewhat circular way. It's just the, the Christian worldview can do it successfully. It can make knowledge possible. The secular worldview or any non-Christian worldview will blow itself up on its own terms. That's how you... That's how you demonstrate the truth of the Christian worldview. So it may seem at first like we can't get anywhere because we're on our two separate islands. I'm standing on my biblical presuppositions. Bible is true. There are absolutes from God. There are laws of logic. There are laws of morality. There's uniformity and induction that makes science possible because God upholds the universe in a consistent way. My secular colleague is standing on some combination of those secular presuppositions, naturalism, empiricism, what have you. Bible is irrelevant to any, any kind of knowledge or science. But what you're going to find is that secular presuppositions will not support a worldview. They're sinking sand. They will not make knowledge possible. They won't. Because you have no basis for laws of logic in a naturalistic universe. You have no basis for uniformity in nature if you're an empiricist. You don't have any basis for those things. And so when that sand dissolves away, the unbeliever is left in a rather awkward position. He cannot stand on his own worldview. And so what's, what's an unbeliever to do? He's going to do this. Unbelievers must stand on Christian presuppositions because they have to. Oh yes, unbelievers do believe in laws of logic. And they do accept that they're universal and unchanging, even though they have no rational basis for that on their own worldview. They're standing on the Christian worldview. They're stealing Christian presuppositions to support their own worldview. Unbelievers are presuppositional kleptomaniacs. They compulsively steal from the Christian worldview to support their own. And they can't help themselves. We're going to point that out. We're going to say, well, look, fella... Uh, you're standing on Christian ground. He's going to say, no, it's not. No, laws of logic, that's not a Christian presupposition. But the fact is, he can't justify laws of logic on his own worldview. And we're going to point out that inconsistency. And, you know, and again, it's up to God to change his heart. Only God can do that. We're just going to point out the inconsistency. We're going to say, look, fellow, you're standing on God's ground. You either need to get saved or stop trespassing. And we pray you'll get saved, but that's between you and God. Okay, we're just pointing out the inconsistency. You can think of a debate over creation and evolution, or, or debate over biblical authority, a lot like a debate on the existence of air. Can you imagine pe two people debating whether or not air exists? What would the critic of air say? He's up there making all these elaborate arguments. Oh, there's no such thing as air. All the while, breathing air, 
and expecting that we can hear the argument as the sound is transmitted through the air, wouldn't that be rather peculiar? You see, the critic of air must use air in order to make a case against air. The fact that he's able to make his argument proves that his argument is wrong. Isn't that interesting? The very fact he can make the argument demonstrates his position is wrong. And so it is with the critic of the Bible. The critic of the Bible must use biblical presuppositions in order to argue against the Bible. He'll have to use God's laws of logic to, make, to say, well, the Bible's not rational. It's got contradictions. Uh, wait a minute, who told you that contradictions are always wrong? That's a biblical principle. Oh, yeah. Or he'll have to say that the Bible is unscientific, in which case he's relying upon God's upholding the universe in a consistent fashion. Or he'll say the Bible is, is morally disgusting and the things that, that God does or whatever, in which case he's going to rely on the absolute morality that can only make sense if, if, if God really is the creator. Isn't that interesting? The secularist must stand on Christian ground using Christian presuppositions even in his argument against the Christian position. And that's not going to work out well for him, is it? Because even if he were successful in refuting the Christian position, he would lose the very ground on which he must stand in order to make the argument. And I hope you get that picture in your mind, if, uh, if nothing else. As I, it, we kept thinking of different ways to illustrate this, and I kept thinking of those old um, cartoons with the wily e. coyote, and he would, he would lay a trap down and get caught up in his own trap. It really is that way. It really is that way. You see, unbelievers might deny being made in God's image, but they can't escape being made in God's image. They're going to have to stand on God's ground even when they make an argument against God. The way Van Til put it, he said that it's like a little girl, she's slapping her father in the face and spitting on him, insulting him. She's only able to do it, as she's sitting in, his, in her father's lap, she's only able to do it because her father supports her, you see. And, and God is that way too. God uh, allows the, even the atheist to use his laws of logic, to use the fact that God upholds the universe in a consistent fashion, uh, to, to, it gives him a sense of morality, writes his law in his heart and so on. The atheist can only spit in God's face because God's supporting him. Isn't that fascinating? And again, it's not just these three, but these are the three that I like to focus in on. You realize any argument against Christianity will, will have to use one of these three things. You realize that? It'll either say that Christianity is irrational, in which case they're assuming God's laws of logic, or they'll say Christianity is unscientific, in which case they're relying upon uniformity in nature. That only makes sense because God upholds uh, creation in a consistent way, or they'll say the Bible's morally disgusting, in which case they're relying upon the biblical concept of absolute morality. I want to zoom in on this last one, absolute morality, because I think that was the easiest one to, to start with if you're new to this way of thinking. If God created us, then yeah, he's got the right to set the rules. He's the creator. He can make the universe as he wills. It's up to him what he wants to do with it. And he'll hold us accountable for actions. And so, uh, yeah, we have absolutes from God. And they're the same for everybody, right? Because God's sovereign over everybody. God's a linguistic being. He communicated to us. We find that in Genesis. So this is a Genesis theme. But if God did not create us, if we're just rearranged pond scum, then why would there be an absolute moral code? If we're just chemical accidents, there's no moral code for chemistry. Chemistry just does what chemistry does. And some people might say that. They might say, that's, that's right. I'm just an evolved ape. And so morality is just, I can invent whatever morality I want. But people can't live that way, can they? Because the fact is, if I were to, uh, if I come up against somebody and says, no, no, morality is relative. We just, it's just, we're all evolved. And so I can, I can make up my own morality and so can you. And therefore you can't go around telling other people what not to do. What has he just done? He's told other people what not to do, right? When he says, you can't do that. He's, he's imposed morality on me. He's assuming that it's objective. 
For that matter, I could just say, okay, then hypothetically, if I were to pull my Glock on you, why can't, you know, why shouldn't I pull the trigger? Go ahead, make my day. Give me a reason, right? Now, if he says, well, um, you can't do that because you know, that, would be, that would be wrong. Well, then he's made my day, right? Because he's demonstrated that he understands that morality is objective. It's the same for him and for me. And if he says nothing, he says, well, yeah, I guess I can't give a reason. Then I just pull the trigger and I win the debate that way, right? There's no laws of logic in a chance universe. So as far as I can tell, you might as well just win the debate by simply shooting your opponent. Now, I wouldn't do that because I'm a Christian. And I understand that we win debates through logical reasoning and, and not through, um, you know, through physical violence. But you, can, you, you see my point. In a secular worldview, why not? It's just one chemical accident getting rid of another chemical accident. You're going to ask a, uh, an unbeliever, how do you decide right from wrong? What does that even mean? What do right and wrong even mean in your worldview? And how do you decide right from wrong? Because apart from the biblical God, God morality can only be relative, but people cannot live that way, and they won't. Now, some people might say, well, everybody knows right from wrong. I said, yes, because we're made in God's image. God's written his law in our heart. That's taught in Romans 1, Romans 2. Yes, but how can you even make sense of right and wrong from your secular perspective? And there aren't too many responses to this, uh, really. They usually fall into one of these categories. Some people say, no, you don't need God to know right and wrong or to know good and bad. Good is what brings the most happiness to the most people. And aside from the... <laughs> The impracticality of that definition is if I could somehow measure the you know the happiness of a per, you know I've got my little tricorder and I measure your happiness and and try to add it up you know I mean aside from the impracticality of it this is arbitrary in a chance universe happiness is just a chemical reaction in your brain which is just itself a chemical accident right now why why am I obligated to try and achieve a particular chemical reaction in you that doesn't make any sense. Somebody else comes along and says, "Good, no, good is what brings the most pain to the most people. Now, that's just a different chemical reaction. Why should I choose that chemical reaction over that one? There's no objective basis for that. And some of you, some of you might be thinking, but wait a minute, we should be concerned about other people. And yes, we should in the Christian worldview because they're made in the image of God and they're not chemical accidents. But you see, my point is, this argument doesn't make sense. This position doesn't make sense in, in the professed worldview of someone who denies the Bible. And even here, he's borrowing on the Christian worldview, isn't he? He's saying, yeah, come on, Lyle, you don't need the Bible to know right and wrong. Just, just do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And I'm thinking, I've heard something like that somewhere. Oh, yeah, that's a Christian position, isn't it? I was debating a, a PhD neurologist, a brain expert on this issue, and this is what he said. He said, the moral code is simply electrochemical impulses in the brain. He says, well, it's probably a part of the brain that, you know, that developed under evolutionary processes. And, and, you know, and I said, then why should I follow it? Why should I follow it? I've got chemistry going on in my stomach. Should I use my indigestion to tell me right from wrong? There's no moral obligation if it's just chemistry, right? Some people say, well, laws and morality are conventions adopted for the benefit of society. Come on, Lyle, we need laws or people go around acting like animals. You say, but isn't that what we are in your worldview? Are we just animals? And by the way, who decides what benefits society? That's a problem because not everybody agrees on what benefits society. Hitler had some ideas about that. I hope you would not agree with him on those issues. See, benefit even assumes an objective standard of goodness, doesn't it? Who decides what that is? Just to drill at home, consider an evolutionist who is outraged at seeing a violent murder on television. He says, I can't believe 
that man shot that little girl. He should go to jail. Now, I'm happy he's angry, but he's an evolutionist. Why should he be angry on his worldview? It's a behavioral inconsistency. In his worldview, murder is just one chemical accident getting rid of another chemical accident. What's the big deal? If we're just chemistry. Chemistry just does what chemistry does. There's no right or wrong about it, right? You mix the, the vinegar and the baking soda, it will fizz. That's what chemistry does. You don't get angry at it. Bad baking soda. You shouldn't have fizzed that way. <laughs> That's just what chemistry does. Now, if our brain is just like the fizzing of, of baking soda and vinegar, if it's just chemistry, first of all, we have no choice. If, it's just, if we're just chemistry, there's no choice, right? And so the whole idea that people could act differently, that goes away. Moral responsibility goes away. But you wouldn't make, it wouldn't make sense to punish a chemical accident. If we're just evolved animals, it doesn't make sense to punish an animal. A lion goes out and kills another lion. They do that sometimes. You don't put the lion in jail and say, you better think about what you did. That was wrong. It's just what animals do. They don't have that moral code because they're not made in God's image like we are. So you see, the fact that the unbeliever, the evolutionist, in the classroom he might teach, oh, you're just, you know, you're just, you're just chemical accidents. Evolved over millions of years. But then he gets upset when he sees a murder on television. You know what it shows? It shows in his heart of hearts he does really know God. When I, when I do apologetics, folks, when I'm, when I'm conversing with someone who professes not to be a Christian, I don't spend a lot of time presenting new evidence to them because they already have all the evidence they need and they're suppressing that truth and unrighteousness. What I try to do is expose their suppressed knowledge of God. And I often do that by pointing out that their behavior shows that they don't really believe what they say they believe. They're in self-denial. And I found that's a very effective way to do apologetics. It really is very effective. So the unbeliever has to stand on Christian presuppositions even in order to argue against presupposition, Christian presuppositions. There is a strategy that you can use to, uh, to bring this inconsistency to the surface. It's a very effective strategy. It's not a gimmick or a trick. It's just a way of revealing truth. I call it the don't answer answer strategy. It's straight from scripture. That's why it works. God does know how to argue. God has yet to lose an argument. Uh, the Bible provides a strategy for effectively defending the Christian faith against all opposition. It's based on Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Proverbs 26, 4 says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you uh, also be like him. So here the Bible is telling us that when a, a person who has foolish presuppositions, and the Bible's not just engaging in name-calling. It's not just saying you're just a moron. It's using that term to describe someone who is dense, who is perhaps intelligent, but who refuses to use his brain in the way that God intended and is, there, and is therefore a fool. That's what the term means. Uh, the Bible tells us we're not to answer a fool according to his folly. We're not to accept his presuppositions. Somebody comes to you and says, uh, you know, we can leave the Bible out of the discussion. You can, we can talk about origins, but leave the Bible out of the discussion. That is foolish because the Bible is the only record of origins we have. That's foolish. Don't do that. Don't embrace his presuppositions. He says, but I don't believe the Bible. I say, well, that's your problem. Right? You should. We're going to represent that with a silly outfit, right? Somebody has a silly worldview. And so uh, he says, you know, we can, you know, we can talk origins, but you've got to leave the Bible out of the discussion. Now, if you agree to those terms, then you've become like him, haven't you? And now you can't get anywhere because you're going to try and discuss the origin of the universe, leaving out the only historical record you have of the origin of the universe. Not a good place to start. On the other hand, the next proverb says, answer a fool according to his folly. 
You might think, well, that's a contradiction, right? Well, no, because the sense is different. The last part of the verse says, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So on the one hand, you don't want to embrace the presuppositions of the other believer, but you, you, um, you do want to stand on the presuppositions of the unbeliever temporarily to show that they lead to absurdity so that he can't be wise in his own eyes. It's kind of like, I'm not going to live in your house. I'm just going to step inside for a few minutes, destroy all the furniture, and then leave. Okay? And so if somebody comes to you and says, uh, there are no absolutes, that's a silly position, isn't it? Now, you don't want to put on the outfit. You don't want to say, okay, there's no absolutes. You don't want to agree to that. But you do want to reflect it back to them and say, actually, the statement you just made, there are no absolutes, is an absolute statement. You see how silly you're being? Now, you want to do this politely, of course, but you do want to point out that his standard destroys itself. If there were no absolute statements, he couldn't have said there are no absolute, there are no absolutes, right? So let me give you a silly example, and then I'll give you some more realistic ones. Somebody comes to you and says, I don't believe in words. Prove to me that creation is true, but you can't use words because I don't believe in words. <laughs> Wouldn't that be ridiculous? Would you, would you embrace that standard? Would you say, well, yeah, I guess if you don't believe in words, I can't use words. I'll have to use charades or something. No, don't do that. Don't answer. You're going to say something like this. I don't accept your belief that words don't exist. Okay, So you're letting him know that you don't, maybe you don't have to say it, it might be implied. This isn't like a, a you know, formulaic sort of thing. But that's the attitude you need to have. You need to say, well, sir, I don't, ex I don't embrace your standard that words don't exist. Okay, That's the don't answer part. And then the answer part is, but hypothetically, if words didn't exist, you couldn't argue anyway. The fact that you're able to make your case demonstrates that it is wrong. You just used words to tell me that you don't believe in words. So do words exist or don't they? Now, how's, how's he going to respond now? If he says nothing, I win the point. If he says anything, I win the point. Right? He's on the horns of a dilemma. This is a good strategy. That's why God put it in Scripture for us. Never put on the outfit, but do reflect it, do reflect it back. Reflect back the unbeliever's fallacious thinking so that you can see the absurdity of it. Uh, Jesus in his earthly ministry was absolutely masterful at using this approach. And you can see it in the way that he responds to his critics. He never embraces their foolish standard. But then he reflects it back to him. You know, if I'm casting out demons by, by Satan, then by whom do your sons cast them out? And so it, you can see that it's, it applied masterfully. And of course, Jesus inspired this strategy in the first place, his spirit. Let's, let's give you some more uh, realistic examples here. Somebody says, I believe in naturalism. Nature's all that there is. Matter in motion. Show me logically how the earth could be 6,000 years old. Now, I hope you zoomed in on the inconsistency. Naturalism? Logically. Because you see, you can't have laws of logic in a naturalistic universe. If everything that exists is matter in motion, you can't have laws of logic because they're not made of matter and they're not in motion. They're abstract rules of, of correct reasoning. And so you want to use the don't answer answer strategy to expose that absurdity. First of all, I don't accept your belief in naturalism. Right? I, I, I do believe in nature, but I believe that there's more to reality than simply atoms in motion. But hypothetically, if naturalism were true, it would be impossible to prove anything since you can't have laws of logic. And even if you embraced them, you'd have no way of knowing about them or that, they're, that they don't change with time or that they're universal. Here's another example. Somebody says, you can't take the Bible seriously. It's full of contradictions. Have you heard people say that before? And there is some value in, in going through and saying, okay, show me some, and I'll, I'll kind of help you to understand that. There's, there's some value in that. But ultimately, you want to answer using the don't answer answer strategy. And you say, well, first of all, I don't accept your claim that the Bible has contradictions. Because you see, the Bible is written by inspiration of God. God cannot deny himself, the Bible says. And therefore, there can't be contradictions in Scripture. But 
And here's a question most people don't think to ask. Hypothetically, in your worldview, why would that be wrong? Well, everybody knows contradictions are wrong. Uh, excuse me, sir, I know contradictions are wrong because truth is in the mind of God and God doesn't deny himself, therefore truth can never contradict truth. But how can you possibly know that contradictions are always wrong? Because, well, I've never seen two contradictory statements both true. I'll say, well, I've never seen Antarctica. Does that mean it doesn't exist? That's no proof at all, is it? You couldn't possibly know that contradictions are always false unless you're God or it's been revealed to you by God. Isn't that interesting? It's wrong to teach creation in schools while you're lying to children. Well, first of all, the don't answer part. I don't accept your claim. I don't accept your presupposition that teaching creation is lying. Creation is true. I'd be happy to talk with you about that. Happy to talk some of the science. That's great. But hypothetically, if we were lying to children, why in your worldview would that be wrong? Well, everybody knows it's wrong to lie. I, as a Christian, know it's wrong to lie because that's contrary to God's command and to his nature for that matter. But in your worldview, children are just chemical accidents. Now, why should I be concerned about lying to a chemical accident, especially if it benefits my survival? Christian God's not good. He slaughters innocent children. Look at that Old Testament God going out and slaughtering all those you know, innocent children and so on. A lot of Christians have trouble answering that until you realize the question presupposes the truth of the Christian worldview. Because you have words like good and innocent. Those are moral words. They, they, they're meaningless in a chance universe. Isn't that interesting? People are bothered by this problem. It's actually a proof of the Christian worldview. First of all, I don't accept your standard that God is not good. God is good and is in fact the standard of goodness. So when you say God is not good, it's like saying Dr. Lyle is not very Dr. Lyle-ish. That's silly. But hypothetically, apart from God, how can you determine what is good and who are innocent? What do those words even mean? in your worldview. They're meaningless. The better you get at this, the more you can see how the non-Christian has to stand on Christian ground to argue against Christianity. Any argument against Christianity must suppose, must presuppose Christianity to get off the ground, or at least Christian principles. And if you recognize this, boy, is it powerful. And you can agree with the Apostle Paul and say, where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Is not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Sanctify the Lord God in your heart. See how everything depends on the truth in Christ, then you'll be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks a reason for the hope that's in you with meekness and fear, with gentleness and respect. And again, people may not convert. That's not your job. As Dr. Bonson liked to put it, it's not our job to open up people's hearts. That's up to the Holy Spirit. It's our job to close their mouths. And this method will do that. And I've been kind of blunt in the hypothetical answers I've given. Obviously, we need to be gracious and respectful. I just I wanted to make the point, but uh, you understand this, of course. We do need to be respectful. And that's the last part of the verse there, meekness and fear, gentleness and respect. As you get good at this, it's very easy to refute people and to just destroy their position intellectually. It really is. And we need to remember this isn't an academic game. This is not about proving who's right, because the fact is if God hadn't changed your heart, you'd be in the same boat as the unbeliever. And critics are made in the image of God, too, and therefore deserving of respect and dignity, even though they might deny that. It's true. So the key is to stand on the Word of God in our, in our every thought. And, um, you know, you might think, well, this, I don't know, it's kind of abstract, it's kind of philosophical. The fact is, it's powerful, because it's, it's based on the theology that the Bible itself teaches. It's based on truth, and you can't refute truth. You just can't.
It's not a gimmick. It's not something that you can use to prove anything else other than the Christian worldview. That's all it does, is it, is it demonstrates the truth of the Christian worldview. Whether people accept it or not, it's up to God. Um, I found that it takes uh, a little bit of time to master this, but not long. I've been, I, I do a class, or I did a class um, for youngsters, 18-year-olds, something like that. It, it was a one-week class, and I would teach them apologetics, and I would teach them this method. By the end of the week, they had it. So if teenagers can get this in a week, my point is you, you can do this. It's, it's not that difficult. It does take a little bit of thought, and you get better at it the more you use it like anything else. Our website, you can check out more materials on this topic, articles on this topic, biblicalscienceinstitute.com. And we have, of course, a number of resources on the back table there that you can get, including the book, The Ultimate Proof of Creation, which is what this talk focused on. We have the DVD as well. And, uh, um, and of course, the book's great because I know I, know I talk too fast, and so I wrote the book really slowly, so you can take your time with it. And, uh, and the DVD, you can pause it and say, you know, back it up. Uh, we have two sort of sequels, Nuclear Strength Apologetics, that go into more depth on this very topic. Understanding Genesis, how to apply this to uh, maybe to Christians who are not being so consistent. Can you use the same way of revealing truth with Christians who are not being consistent? Yes, you can. And uh, in particular, in their understanding of the first chapters of Genesis and the DVD as well. We'll, co we'll cover that tomorrow. Uh, discerning truth, how to spot logical fallacies and arguments that, that evolutionists tend to make. We have DVDs, Created Cosmos, takes you on a tour of the universe from a biblical perspective. That's a lot of fun. Stargazer's Guide to the Night Sky, how to better enjoy the night sky from a Christian perspective. I'll hit more on that uh, tomorrow, as well as taking back astronomy, uh, how to refute the, the Big Bang and the billions of years and so on, and the DVD that goes along with that, Astronomy Reveals Creation. One of my, uh, one of my more recent books, Keeping Faith in an Age of Reason, answers 420 alleged Bible contradictions. Yes, it is helpful to know some of these claims of contradictions and why they aren't really contradictions at all. There's an internet list that floats around with, it's got over 400 contradictions in the Bible. And I said, okay, I'll take up the challenge. And I looked up each one of them. Not one of them is a contradiction. And so I wrote a book on it. You can check that out. Uh, Introduction to Logic. This is my latest book. I'm really excited about this one. It's actually a curriculum designed to teach you logic and how to think rightly. And, how, and it shows you how logic is rooted in the Christian worldview. You cannot make sense of logic or laws of logic apart from the Christian worldview, really. And there's a teacher guide that goes with it as well. Uh, physics of Einstein is exactly what you think it is. Uh, what about black holes and time travel and what about distant starlight and things like that? Uh, and then we have uh, we have another one, uh, some more as well. You can get all the DVDs together for a discount. You can get all the books together for a discount, or you can get everything together and have an instant creation library for a discount that will probably put me out of business, but that's okay. We want to get these resources into your hands. And do sign up. We have a free monthly newsletter, and uh, it is free. You'll see the sign-up sheets in the back there. So, and this is, it's an electronic newsletter, so you'll get in your email. Make sure you put your email address, or you'll get nothing. Um, make sure you put your email address legibly, or you'll get nothing. And uh, it is totally free, so not too many things free in this world, right? Just uh, salvation and our newsletter. So make sure you check that out. And uh, check us out on the web as well, Biblical Science Institute. And we'll be back in about 10 minutes for the Q&A session. Does that sound good? Okay, very good. Thank you very much.